to Nature Revisited, the podcast. My name is Stefan Van Norden. On this episode, Nature for All, we are joined by Jesse Hildebrand, the Canadian coordinator for Nature for All, from his home in Newfoundland, Canada. But first, a word from the sponsor of this episode, Farachi. Farachi is a clothing company that is using the latest sustainable and ethical practices in the making of their clothing. Hello guys, I am pleased to say that our brand Farachi is going to be sponsoring this episode of Nature Revisited. Farachi is a sustainable clothing brand that for every item purchased, we plant between 10 to 25 trees all around the world and take from two to six pounds of plastic trash from our coasts and oceans. We want to give all the Nature Revisited listeners a 20% discount on all orders plus free shipping. So go to Farachi.com. That would be V-U-R-O-C-I.com and claim your 20% discount with the code NATURE at checkout. Thank you guys and I hope you really enjoy this episode. Jesse Hildebrand is a science communicator who has been working to connect scientists and explorers with the public throughout Canada. Jesse is also the VP of Education for the organization Exploring by the Seat of Your Pants. Jesse has been working with Nature for All for the last year and a half as the Canadian coordinator. Nature for All is a global movement whose mission is to inspire, celebrate, and restore the love of nature. It is a community of interested organizations and individuals who are working together to affect change. Welcome, Jesse. So let's start with where you grew up and what role did nature play in your childhood? Yeah, so I, I grew up in Toronto, Ontario, Canada, so the, the biggest city in the country. In spite of that, part because of the amazing work that the city does to really surround people with nature, its slogan is a city within a park, I really never felt disconnected from nature. I was regularly in parks. My parents saw that as being really valuable. So every chance we got, we were by the lakeshore, we were in city parks, we were in provincial parks nearby. And even within my backyard, sort of distinctly remember as a 10-year-old going out with a sketch pad and a magnifying glass, finding 72 species in my backyard. I sort of combed every corner for insects and arachnids and all the cool little creatures that were there. And I lived at the public library. And so any opportunity I could get to, you know, take out nature books or DVDs or, or movies, I did. I mean, David Attenborough and Steve Irwin were a huge part of my childhood. I was very lucky to be surrounded both with the concept and idea and imagery of distant nature places around the globe, as well as really getting to to live it in a big way, even while being in a major city. So when did you first realize that the natural world would play such an important part in your life? I like to tell people that I'm one of the very few people that really knew what I wanted to do from when I was six years old. It might be the tiniest bit of a stretch, but I think it's pretty much on the ball. And Steve Irwin was my big connection to the natural world. And the idea that you could be a person who 
shared a love of nature, of wildlife, of science with the public, and that that was a way to make a living and that you could impact people and sort of impart your enthusiasm to a wide audience every single day or every single week is as magical to me now as it was when I was that age. Like, that is what I wanted to do. You know, when I was a really little boy, I, I just, I loved this. I love animals. I really, I have always loved animals. And so I'm very lucky that I get to have a career now that does uh, center around the natural world and, and sharing that love with people. But from a really early age, that was my, my absolute goal. So how has that evolved, such as you're now involved in broadcasting, production? How did that transition from more of the outdoors to more of the, the media world? You know, again, having grown up with PBS and BBC and National Geographic and these amazing documentaries, there's a real power in translating outdoor experience or a natural experience to something that people can witness from around the globe. For those of us who are lucky enough to have the resources to be able to travel, there's nothing that beats being somewhere in person, and I, I absolutely stand by that. If you can take a bunch of kids out into nature somewhere, if you can immerse yourself in nature, there's nothing that touches that as an experience. But where that's not possible... Broadcasting has always been something that really appealed to me, and what's really exciting both in my personal career and, and sort of in the, the world writ large is that there are so many new avenues that people are exploring to share these stories and these tales in, in this way. Um, alongside that, you have this, this transition to artistry and incorporating art into the science. That wasn't something that I ever saw when I was growing up, and so it's so exciting now to get to either do activities that blend art in or to partner with organizations that do because that way of sharing nature speaks to people in a different way. It's really evolving in a, in a ton of directions all the time. By the time we're, this interview airs, there will probably be new ways that people are, are utilizing to, to share these stories of the natural world with people, which is very exciting. So you started and are involved with a number of organizations that are working together to help make that difference by exploring our relationships with nature and science. Let's talk about them a little bit. Uh, first off, how did you get involved with exploring by the seat of your pants? What inspired that and what is its focus? Yeah, so I had left university in 2014. I got an ecology degree. And the first thing I did was set up a program called Science Literacy Week, getting libraries, museums, science centers to participate in a big blitz of events all across Canada. And so through that work, which was so, so fulfilling and exciting, getting to create events coast to coast to coast, a teacher found out about my name and, and reached out to me. His name was Joe Grabowski, and he had been bringing in scientists and explorers into his classroom virtually, sort of modern-day Steve Irwins, people that are on the frontier doing amazing things in the wild all across the planet. And he was connecting with them live from the field or from their office where they could share pictures and videos and stories of these cool experiences that they'd had to, to captivate his students personally. And he adored this and wanted to take it and turn it into something much bigger where more classes got involved. And so he had come up with this idea, Exploring by the Seat of Your Pants is the title, found out about my work and, and reached out and said, you know, what do you think? Do you want to be involved? My jaw basically hit the floor hearing about this concept and this idea and the power that you could have having live interactions with these amazing people to inspire students globally. And so I jumped on board. I became the volunteer-in-chief for several years. I uh, got involved in every aspect of production for making these connections happen, getting new classrooms, getting new speakers, hosting these broadcasts. 
And I've carried that forward to now where I'm alongside Joe, one of the two-man team at Exploring by the Seat of Your Pants, and we regularly get to do 40, 50 programs a month with scientists, conservationists, nature educators, uh, and more around the globe. So I'm, I pinch myself daily. I'm the luckiest person in the world to have the job that I do, and it's been very fortunate, uh, my experience with Exploring by the Seat of Your Pants. So I'm going to ask a real obvious question. Why is it so important that we bring nature into the classroom at a young age? For me, it's because so many kids are disconnected from the natural world. And that profoundly shapes your view of the world. Again, when I grew up, I had every opportunity. If I was interested in something, my parents got me books, they got me movies, they got me opportunities to bring this into the classroom of the home. And when I would share these stories with my classmates, even back then, they were blown away. They'd never heard of any of the stuff, that they'd never had that impetus to, to go and explore it themselves. They'd never had a, a figure, a teacher, or a parent in their life to share with them. And so it's important because it makes sure that no matter where you grow up in the world, you understand that we're part of a living world. And I, I think that's the most profound lesson that science has ever really taught us is that we're not separate from the natural world. We're part of it. We are an animal on this planet. We have an evolutionary history. We are, our actions impact other species and changes in ecosystems affect us. And this is a, a consciousness that has been increasingly coming back into the classroom, generally in large part because there's been a shift to indigenous ways of knowing, which has been very exciting to see as a Canadian. When people have that connection, when they see that and when they have it in their classroom, it goes such a long way to changing their view of the world for the better. So how is your exploring by the seat of your pants, how is that connected, if it is, to Backyard Bio and Hope for Wildlife, two other two organizations that you're involved with? Backyard Bio is an initiative of Exploring by the Seat of Your Pants. So Backyard Bio is something that I've always wanted to do for many years. 2020 comes along. We did a program series called the Global Biodiversity Festival. There's another name for you, uh, where we did 60 programs in one weekend, all featuring conservationists around the globe to really inspire people with this, this idea that there's so much great work being done globally. And as an activity during that festival, we said, look, go outside with your phone. If you're a speaker, if you're a student watching, and take a picture of some living thing near you. Could be a tree, could be a fungus, could be a snake, what have you. And share it with hashtag backyard bio. What lives in your backyard? That went way better than we thought it was going to. We had a, a speaker live in Kenya. He finished his talk. He walked 100 feet away, and he took a picture of a lion because in Kenya, that's his backyard. We had people share hornbills in Uganda. We had kids start sharing pictures of robins and birds' nests that they found and spiders in their house and whatnot. And so it was so exciting to see how people took up this mantle of, of exploring local wildlife that – I wanted to turn it into something bigger. And so over the last few years, Backyard Bio has run as this youth-led bio blitz, an, an opportunity in the month of May for teachers in classrooms and people around the world, really, to go and explore their local neck of the woods. doesn't need to be your literal backyard. It can be your house. It can be a local park. And to see what they can find. Because, again, just like bringing nature to the classroom, if you give people this opportunity and sort of this push to go do it, you get people excited. They, they find out that things live near them that they never knew were there before. They find out that there's a flourishing diversity, whether they live in the Amazon rainforest or the heart of New York City. So you have kids in 
Canada, with kids in England, with kids in South Korea, all sharing what they found and sort of rejoicing in this biodiversity. And so Backyard Bio is one of the signature initiatives of Exploring by the Sea to Your Pants. It's my baby uh, every May. And Hope for Wildlife is a one of our broadcast series. So regularly we partner with organizations and institutions to share their stories in a way that really uh, cohesively tells a story to classrooms. And so Hope for Wildlife was an effort in partnership with two other amazing organizations to share all positive stories of conservation, species that are coming back from the brink because of the concerted efforts of amazing conservationists around the globe. You're a busy man. So now all of these things, I take it, led you to find a connection with the organization called Nature for All, which is an amazing effort that I have just recently discovered and through them have been connected with you. So when and how did you make your connection with Nature for All? And how would you describe what Nature for All is, what its mission is? We mentioned Backyard Bio, and so I was trying to find partner organizations around the globe to partner with me on this and to share it out with their networks. And I happened to be put in touch with Jose at Nature for All. I said, here's my vision for this, here's who I want to get involved. And within seconds, he put me in touch with, I think, 45 organizations, their heads of education, their CEOs, their you know main communications directors around the globe, people that in some cases I've been looking to chat with for five years, literally, and had never gotten that in to have that connection to be able to pitch my case or, or find an opportunity to partner. And so my jaw hit the floor at the power of this network. And so I, I said to you at the time, you know, if there's a, an opportunity to get involved with Nature for All in the future, I am in. I am so excited to be involved and to help grow this network and partner with it in as many ways as possible. And that leads to the, you know, what it's all about to begin with. Really, it's it's a global movement. It's organizations around the globe in nature education and conservation that are working together with the idea that you can have a bigger impact together than you ever could independently. By way of what it does, it, it's a central resource hub where these partner organizations can showcase and highlight their resources and activities for the world to see, be inspired by one another. And it's a platform and a place where these groups can partner and connect with one another to find opportunities to do things together jointly. I mean, with Backyard Bio, it would have taken me months, if not years, to foster you know, the amount and the, the quality of the connections that I made in literally minutes through Nature for All. And so what an exciting thing to be a part of. That's the essence of it, is that you know, all these amazing groups ought to have a place and a way to share their ideas, to find opportunities to connect, and Nature for All is that, that movement, is that connection, is that hub. So when was Nature for All first created? In 2009, the story really begins. We have Parks Canada, who's an amazing organization, by the way. I can't laud Parks Canada enough, and I know I'm biased as a Canadian, but they really are fantastic. So they're hosting the World Protected Areas Leaders Forum is the name of this uh, grouping that they're gathering. And like a lot of park systems, they were trying to find new approaches to increase the relevance of parks and protected areas to the changing world. Around the globe, parks are trying to figure out ways of remedying that. And so... Parks host this amazing sort of gathering. If you've seen how parks market themselves nowadays, they have changed so radically, and it's really exciting to see uh, a now very diverse demographics heading to parks around the globe and certainly here in Canada. 
And so that's the impetus of the idea of let's reach new people with the power of nature and wildlife. And so over the next seven years, you have different gatherings with parks, uh, congresses, World National Park CEOs, and that leads us to 2016. So 2016, uh, the IUCN, sort of the, the spearheader of all this, World Conservation Congress meeting happens in Hawaii, where you expand from just parks to these other non-governmental organizations, amazing non-profits, charities, groups that are involved in this conservation and nature storytelling. And the idea comes to take it from just being a, a youth focus or a new demographic focus or parks to everybody. How do we collectively work to share those best practices, to connect, to partner, to create something where people go, oh, I want to learn about something, nature for all is my way to go, or, oh, we're a park system in Indonesia, how do we partner to make something better? Let's talk to the group in Canada, and nature for all is a way to do that. So 2016, you have the official beginning of the nature for all movement, sort of begun seven years earlier with Parks Canada leading the charge. Nature for all, can I assume, doesn't necessarily focus on any particular cause or issue. It tries to encompass all, is that correct? Yeah, there are four main focus areas within it, but the idea is generally to inspire a love of nature in people around the globe, no matter what their background, no matter where they're from. But their they're four focus areas are youth and education, urban nature, health and nature, and protected areas, which I think are, are really fantastic choices. If you're going to narrow it down, those are good ones to pick. But the four key themes that Nature for All has, if I could elaborate on those for a minute, I would love to do that. I think that there's value in that, and it might put some people on to some of the coolest ideas that are happening in the world of, of nature education right now. You know, Nature for All right now has four key themes, youth and education, urban nature, health and nature, and protected areas. And so youth engagement is an essential facet of not just Nature for All, but so many other groups globally. So many kids these days have a faltering or no connection to nature because they're not immersed in it. And you can't love something that you don't understand. And so every effort to make sure that youth feel connected to landscapes, oceans, habitats, species, I think is, is really of value. And I'm really excited that Nature Crawl is leading with that. Urban nature is linked to that. You know, I, I mentioned at the top, I was lucky to grow up in Toronto with a multitude of really fantastic urban parks that were invested in heavily, where it's easy to be immersed in green, uh, see a wide variety of wildlife and connect with it. But there's a need both to bring that level of natural connection to all cities around the globe. I've been lucky to go to some cities with really amazing park systems. Mexico City, New York, with Central Park has an incredible one. London, England is a beautiful park. But to make sure that all places have spaces like that, but also to enhance what currently exists too. If you want people to appreciate nature, increasingly as we move to like a, an urban world, I think you know we're already more urban than we are rural. And so if 80% of the population is predicted is going to live in an urban center, you have to have those connections to nature and wildlife. London, uh, England has a national park city movement. Uh, Dan Raven Ellison's uh, campaign, which is the best example of this I've seen on earth. Uh, health and nature is such an important one to me because it's so little known in the public consciousness. I think a lot of people recognize urban nature. They know that youth need to be connected with nature, but health has been slower to, to get into the public eye. But I, I remember so distinctly the first time that I read about hospital patients recovering better when they had a view of greenery than just brick and steel. In our programs at Exploring by the Seat of Your Pants, we've had the chance to hear from people in Antarctica and who have been astronauts. And universally, people in those spaces want to see green. They have a giant greenhouse in Antarctica to allow people to be immersed in green. 
And it goes beyond that to measurable, significant health benefits of being outdoors. So Park Prescriptions is the Canadian example of this. Um, Melissa Lem, Dr. Melissa Lem, does an amazing job of highlighting this, but you, you've seen this movement in the U.S., in the U.K., in Canada, I think increasingly around the world. But the idea of uh, prescription to be outdoors is incredible, and I'm so glad Nature for All is focusing on that. And finally, protected areas. I mean, we all hopefully know protected areas, know of protected areas, have been to places like national parks or marine protected areas. But there's this huge shift. Right now, we have 30 by 30, the idea that we're going to protect 30% of the world's surface by 2030. And it's a concept that's gotten a lot of ground and traction in governments and, and IUCN meetings around the globe. But it's going to take a different approach to conservation. It's going to take changing what we think constitutes a park and making sure that we recognize indigenous ways of, of preserving wildlife and habitats. And I think it's just such an exciting time to be in this field. And I'm really glad that Nature for All has chosen these as their, their main focal areas. So how do other projects and other people get involved with Nature for All? So incredibly simply, and this is something that uh, as the Canadian coordinator for Nature for All, I've been trying to impart to partners and organizations and individuals around the country and the world over the last couple of years now. But really, you, you go to natureforall.global, you click the join button, there's a word on the home page, and it's an opportunity to share who you are, what organization you're representing, some details about what you'd like to sort of uh, see or partner with, and you're in. Now that you're in, it's entirely free. You have the opportunity to share your resources on their hub, which is called the Discovery Zone. You have the ability to join virtually in or live calls with other partners around the world, and you're now instantly in touch with these doers, these people that are doing such great work at amazing organizations. This is my experience. You know, I found it about Nature for All. I joined, and within a day, I was being put in touch with these people and other incredible groups around the world to help make my campaign, Backyard Bio, succeed the way that it did. So that's how easy it is. Head to the website and uh, go from there. How important is it? The title is Nature for All, and you're looking, you're looking at nature globally. And oftentimes people will say, you know, think globally but act locally. How important is it in this time that we do focus globally as well as locally? I, I think it's really important that people and organizations recognize global problems, whether that's climate change, biodiversity loss, marine plastic, like these big global issues, and keep them in mind when they come up with new ideas and campaigns. I mean, linking the stuff that you're doing to these things is a proven successful strategy. But I've found that local action almost always works the best. So there's been a big shift in the last years to having everything be global in scope because people are instinctively drawn to universal silver bullet solutions. Oh, if it works here, it'll work everywhere, and let's implement it and do it. And I've been in the field long enough, and I've had the chance to work with a lot of conservationists and nature educators around the globe to have seen the needle sort of shift back to where people are recognizing that local solutions often work best because they take into account the needs of the people living there. I think one of the most salient examples of that is conservation in, in Canada and North America has really started to move the needle back to indigenous-led conservation, where the recognition is there that sort of top-down solution where we say, you know, do it this way has been successful in some places, but unsuccessful in others, whereas people that have been stewards of the land for 10,000 years and where biodiversity flourished that entire time till you know, Europeans came in, 
they have the right to be in that conversation and they have proven successful strategies. So that said, um, thinking globally, it allows for groups who might never have come up with a good idea or solution to draw from and partner with successful organizations elsewhere. So this is the nature for all essence, is that if you have a group in Indonesia that's doing something great, they can share their story with a group in Brazil, say, but the group in Brazil ultimately needs to adopt that idea and modify it and tweak it to fit their, their local population. So you can make faster and better positive differences through these connections, but I think that acting locally is, is always the way to go is my take on it. So can you share with us maybe a few of the successes that you have seen through the work of Nature for All? Yeah, well, to bring it back to the two examples you gave earlier with regards to exploring by the seat of your pants, like Hope for Wildlife and Backyard Bio are perfect models of this. I mean, Backyard Bio started off with me being enthusiastic about an idea and having no one to partner with for it. And the first year that we ran it, in 2021 properly, we had over 320 classrooms participate around the globe. We had classes in India, South Korea, Brazil, England take part that never would have had the opportunity to learn about this were it not for the Nature for All partners that I, I was able to connect with because of this incredible network. Hope for Wildlife is a series that came together literally because I had the chance to chat with one of the UK coordinators of Nature for All, uh, Julia, she's a conservation optimism. They do amazing work to share positive stories of conservation. And her and I concocted this series together and were able to reach 280 classrooms in one week with these stories of positive conservation. You can go on the Nature for All website and see so many salient examples of the success that has come about through organizations partnering. But for me personally, in a very short period of time, some of the most successful campaigns and actions I've ever done personally or, or as an organization exploring that the seat of your pants has ever done have happened literally entirely because of the Nature for All network. So that's really exciting for me and, and I think exciting as a, a showcase of the power of the network. So why is story so important? when it comes to our relationship with nature? Story, more than just nature, it's how we connect with everything. You can bombard people with facts all the live long day, and if you don't have a compelling narrative to go with that, you're not going to move people. You're going to not appeal to them in the way that makes them want to change their behavior or that clicks with them. The environmental movement starts with seeing the earth from space. Bill Anders' photo of Earthrise, it starts with whale song playing at rallies to highlight, wow, this is how incredible other life on this planet is. You know, Silent Springs is a book that succeeds because it raises the specter of springtime or a world without bird song. So it's the way we make sense of the whole world. So Nature for All is having a storytelling festival. Can you talk about what that is? encompasses, when it is, and how could someone contribute? Yeah, so the, the place to go find out again, uh, Nature for All's website is spectacular. They have a whole storytelling festival section. And so what it is is a concerted effort to sort of bring the the essence of Nature for All to the public in a really big way, a big blitz of photography, visual, uh, video, personal stories told all at once, you know, emphasizing that there are so many ways of loving the natural world. There's so many amazing places on this planet. There's so much great work being done to save it and to share that with 
the world. So on the Storytelling Festival site, there's been this slow, steady rise in the stories that have already been shared and the activities that have already been done on behalf of the Storytelling Festival from partners around the globe. Hope for Wildlife was, in part, a Storytelling Festival activity. We certainly highlighted Nature for All's involvement and sort of uh, pushed to make that happen. And the real peak of this comes in February of 2023. So there's activities happening all over the world. And so, again, I can't encourage people enough to head to the site, learn about what's already happened, see what's coming down the pipeline, and contribute your own. That's the, the essence of this, too, is that anyone is encouraged and welcome to share their story. Because I think there's not a person on this planet that doesn't have some connection with nature. It doesn't have some story or experience or memory that is you know, incredibly fond of, of something outdoors or, or in conjunction with nature. We want people to share those stories, and I think that's uh, a really exciting thing, and, and I can't wait for February, frankly. And really, Nature for All is such a, a beautiful movement. or uh, It's not an organization. It's a collective of all these incredible groups, and so I, I really appreciate uh, you taking the time to chat with me and, and for all of this. And how do you not love doing this. You get the chance to interview and chat with so many amazing people around the globe. I think collectively the world is realizing the importance of nature in so many different ways, and it's a really exciting time to be sharing these stories and you know spreading the word. So thank you so, so much. How does the future of Nature for All look? And are there any areas that they are looking to focus on? We want it to be a situation where when an organization joins Nature for All, their first thought is, wow, like, you know, I have this opportunity to partner with all these amazing groups. We want groups that have, might be new to the field to think about joining us from the get-go so that they have this access to people to help sort of springboard and turbocharge their ideas and concepts and, and new partners to make their, their ideas a, a great success. We want people in the general public to hear Nature for All and go, wow, that's where I want to go. If I want to learn about oceans, you know, all the world's ocean groups have shared their resources there so I can pick and choose something that's really exciting for me to find. And, I mean, if you get to that point where both organizations and the public view Nature for All as this great hub, as this great resource and network, that's the dream. And then, finally, just fostering an environment where partners can share and develop new policies, practices around nature access together. So back to that idea of if we get groups to recognize that they can get their ideas to fruition faster through this, because if you're a park system in Rwanda, it, it would be amazing to be able to steal an idea from the Yukon and implement that with a local spin facilitated so much faster through our networks. I think there's a, a lot of excitement for the future of nature for all. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Jesse Hildebrandt. And you will visit natureforall.global to learn more about their efforts. Nature Revisited would also like to thank Verace for sponsoring this episode. The music for Nature Revisited is by David Virgil. And I hope you will share our podcast with friends, family, and colleagues, and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, or on our website, NordenProductions.com. Nature Revisited is produced by Stefan Van Norden and Charles Gagan, and I hope you will join us for the next edition of Nature Revisited. 
And in the meantime, do remember, we are nature.